0: Our scripture reading today will be taken from John chapter 2, verses 12 through 25. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there, and making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people, and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Thus says the Lord.
1: Thanks, Jackie. All right, guys. Um, Last week, we took a break from our series in the book of John, that the passage we just read today is a part of our bigger series, and we took a break. We did the book of Obadiah which is in the Old Testament, a minor prophet. Today we're going to continue through the book of John, which many of you know is a book that records the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ on earth. Now, as you might have read just now, our passage today in the book of John is a peculiar one. Perhaps it doesn't quite portray the version of Jesus that you often would like to think of when you think of Jesus. Right? He's, in the passage, kind of angry. He seems to have, um, his anger seems to have gotten the best of him. He's he's wailing around. He's scaring people away. He's destroying property. That's not usually the character qualities you want to often be associated with, is it? It's one of those passages that kind of make Christians just kind of, you know, cover their face. They're kind of embarrassed that Jesus is like that. And it's one of those passages that make people who are still exploring Christianity and exploring the gospel a bit repelled away from Jesus, from the gospel, from Christianity. And we feel that way, yeah, because Jesus in our passage is being really mean, or seemingly mean, is being angry, kind of volatile. But I think there's a deeper reason of why this Jesus that we just read kind of repels us. See, I don't think it's primarily because he's mean and angry and volatile. I think this kind of Jesus repels us Because this kind of Jesus is embarrassing. See, if you think about it, people follow angry leaders all the time, right? People support mean and volatile leaders all the time. That's very clear throughout history. A leader can be mean and angry and volatile and people will still follow them. You know what one thing somebody can't be, a leader can't be? They can't be embarrassing. No one will follow an embarrassing leader. And frankly, the Jesus in our passage today, it's kind of embarrassing. But I believe once we've actually pinpointed the heart of the passage, we'd be surprised to actually find the gospel in the midst of this wrath and the love in the midst of this anger. And perhaps seeing the heart of the passage would invite the Christians in this room to no longer cover their face, but slowly put their hands down. And hopefully it'll invite those who are still exploring the gospel, still exploring Christianity, to further understand what Christianity really is all about. So there's three things I want to point out as we go through the passage. One, the gospel we're meant to protect. Two, the embarrassment we're called to endure. Three, the vindication we do not deserve. The gospel we're meant to protect, the embarrassment we're called to endure, the vindication we do not deserve. But before we start, let me pray, and we'll jump to our first place. Father, I beg you that as we um, try to break down this passage and understand it in a way I pray that you would be gracious to our minds that we'd have the cognitive capacity to reason through it and Father you'd be gracious to our hearts that this will not just be head knowledge but we'll see the truth and the love of Christ and the love of you and your love so deeply communicated in this passage for us that we may understand the gospel deeper and fall in deeper love with you I pray for your mercy and that your spirit will be with us today in Jesus name we pray, Amen all right, point number one, the gospel we're meant to protect. So the setting of the story is we see Jesus, if you remember our previous sermon in the book of John, just got done attending a wedding in Cana. You know, the miracle where he turned the water into wine and all that stuff. Um, if you want to know more about that, listen to our, the sermon uh, we had on that from a few weeks ago on SoundCloud. But Jesus, um, after this wedding, he went down with his mother and with his disciples to a place called Capernaum. And this literally was a going down, like went down downhill. Capernaum was actually closer to sea level compared to Cana. And it was about 25 kilometer walk from Cana downwards to Capernaum. Capernaum most likely is where Jesus was staying at the time. The passage said that he stayed there for a few days. That's probably where his um, lodging was at that time. And then we see, after staying there for a few days, what does Jesus do? He goes to another place called Jerusalem. And a big part of understanding our passage today is why Jesus went to Jerusalem. We have to know the reason why. It tells us in verse 13, if you read it, because it was the Passover. The Passover is a Jewish ceremony where they celebrated God freeing Israel, where, where Jewish, the Israelites celebrated God freeing themselves from the slavery of egypt in exodus chapter 12 if you read it god specifically told each family that was still being enslaved by egypt to kill a lamb to cook it and to eat it and to put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of their house to mark it so that when god's wrath went in egypt god would pass over the houses that was marked by the blood of the lamb and his wrath would only then fall upon the cruel and brutal egyptians who enslaved israel brutally for hundreds of years and this is what made Egypt let Israel go in Exodus uh, uh, chapter 12. They're freed finally from their slavery because the blood of a lamb. So Jesus went to partake uh, in the celebration. He walked to Jerusalem because this is a, a, an annual reminder celebration of that. So because there's a Passover, a lot of people were found being in the temple. By the way, it's a really big temple. Okay, It's not just like this size here. We know from historical records this temple covers about 140,000 square meters. It's kind of hard to imagine that, so this is probably a picture that could help us understand it more. Lapangan Merdeka in Monas, right around Monas. The total spread of that is about a thousand square meters. Just just the just the just the Lapangan Merdeka, not not the fields around it, but just the square itself is a thousand square meters. This temple is 140 times bigger than that. 140 times bigger than La Panga Merdeka. It's a huge temple. And if you think about it, uh, it's how it's set up is it's a kind of, big temple and there's there's big walls around it. There's um staircases that go up enter into it. um and then after that you go inside and there's a, another smaller square with smaller walls. And the distance between the bigger walls and the smaller walls, that's called the outer courts, the gentile courts. It's where people it's where it's where a non-Jewish people can go and be at. Non-Jewish people can't enter the smaller square. That's only for Jewish people. Okay, so the big walls, the outer Gentile court, and then the, in the inner court where the temple actually was. This event happened in the outer courts, in the Gentile courts. Okay, so, so picture, try to picture with your heads it's a big space. And what do we see in this big land of space is a lot of people. A lot of merchants, a lot of trade going on, people selling what? Animals. Verse 14, in the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons. And it's really important to note that the reason why they're selling animals, it wasn't to eat, but it was to sacrifice. Why? Because in the Old Testament, to enter the temple of God, you'll see God giving uh, the Israelites very specific instructions. You can't just enter. You can't just meet me with all your sin. There has to be a sacrifice for your sin first. And then you have to be washed with, with water first. Then you have to wear a clean white linen. And then after all these rituals, then you can enter into the temple. So this, the, the animals they're selling, oxen, sheep, and pigeons, weren't to eat. They were to be sacrificed so that people who came can enter into the temple. Now... We also see money changers in verse 14, uh, most likely because people from afar with different currency needed to change their money first to local currency before they bought animals. So it'll be hard for people to bring their animal sacrifice with them traveling so far, so they just buy one there. That's the purpose of it. So Jesus arrives to this scene that you have in your heads right now, and he saw what was going on. And he absolutely lost it. He went berserk. Verse 14. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Remember, this wasn't just like a few people and a few tables. right? The size of the area was 140 times bigger than Lapangan Merdeka. And verse 15 says that he drove them all out, all the traders, all the animals too. Think about it. This must have gone on quite a while. The picture isn't of an angry person that just suddenly bursts into anger, flips two tables, and then calm back down. This was a long time. He went around. It's more of an angry person going on a huge field with a whip for a long time, flipping tables, driving people out, scaring animals away. Imagine how Jesus' disciples must have felt when he saw this happening. Imagine what you would have felt if you were there following Jesus at the time. When he first flipped out, you're probably like, Yeah, okay, Jesus, You, you tell them. You tell them that they're not allowed to use God's house as a house of trade. You, yeah. Then three minutes later, probably like, all right, Jesus, you've you made your point. <laughs> you can calm down now. That's that's quite enough. Ten minutes later, all right, Jesus, any minute now. Can you, can you stop embarrassing me, please? You're kind of an hour later, and you're like, I don't know this guy. I'm not with him. I don't know who he is. He's a madman. He's. Right? It's embarrassing to do that. Who would want to follow someone like that? I don't, I don't want to do that. Am I, as a follower of Jesus, supposed to do what he did? Well, no, we're not, we're not called to follow the exact act itself, as we'll see later, that Jesus' behavior was specifically related to his identity as the Lamb of God. We'll talk about that later. We're not, followed, we're not called to follow his exact actions, but we are called to follow his zeal, his passion, to protect God's place of worship and the gospel. Well, how do we do that? How, how do we know that we're not supposed to follow his exact actions? And if I'm not following his exact actions, just his passion, just his zeal, what is this passage actually calling me, you and I, to do today? Well, to find the answer to that, we have to talk about two things. We have to find out the two reasons of why Jesus did this. First, he did it to rebuke wrong motives. Two, he did it to reveal a wrong sacrificial system to rebuke wrong motives and to reveal a wrong sacrificial system. Let's talk about the first one. Jesus did this to rebuke wrong motives. You must note that he wasn't against trade. He wasn't against business. Business is a good thing. It's, It's a neutral thing. It's fine. He was against where it was happening, verse 14 says, in the temple. See, this is a place of worship. It's not a place for personal gain. In the Old Testament, God's presence literally dwelled in the temple. You must tread it carefully, with reverence, with awe. You can't just make business there. The zeal Jesus had for the Father's house, zeal means passion, to protect the purity of the Father's house in the gospel, verse 17 says, consumed him. It took over. It's not okay to enter into a place of worship of God for earthly monetary gain. My Father's house is not a house of trade, verse 16 says. Two things that should never, ever mix. House of God, house of trade—that happens today in many, many ways. You must be aware of that. But secondly, not only Jesus came about to rebuke wrong motives; he also wanted to reveal a wrong sacrificial system. Now, this is this is beautiful. Imagine the scene. Go back to the scene again. Go back to the temple. Put yourselves back there again. In this big field, okay, um, jam-packed with what? With a bunch of traders trying to financially benefit from selling sacrificial animals that can cleanse sin and also filled with the sacrificial animals who can, if killed, they say, uh, uh, um, clean us from our sins. So so this field, people selling sacrificial animals for salvation and the sacrificial animals itself, that's to be killed for salvation, now enters Jesus. And he drives all of them away. Probably took... A few hours, I don't know. He emptied the whole space. Now it's, now this, pl- this, this field that was what, once jam-packed with traitors and with animal sacrifices is now completely empty. And all you see in this big field is one person, out of breath perhaps, panting. He was truly human. This one person, Jesus, described in John chapter 1 as who? The Lamb of God. Do you see the heart of Jesus here? It's, it's actually a really beautiful picture. It's the grace within the wrath. He, he drove out the traders who claim to be selling something that can cleanse sin. He drove out the animals that was meant to be sin offering and replaces those two things with who? With himself. You see? The picture here is Jesus standing alone, panting out of breath in the middle of that empty open field. What do you think he's trying to tell you? without even saying one word, what do you think he's trying to tell you? You don't need to pay these traitors for your salvation. You don't need to. I will purchase your salvation for you through my cross. You don't need these sacrificial animals for your salvation. I'm your lamb. I will die for you. I'm your way to God, not this. You see, Jesus acted in this way, not only to protect God's holiness and his place of worship, but also to protect the truth of the gospel, that there's no other way for sin to be cleansed. There's no other way that sinful man can get to God, but through him. You see, in this very moment, right now, we're being forced, all of us, to reconsider and reanalyze what the gospel means to you. If we think that the gospel claims to be just a cultural preference, okay, that, that's how white Anglo-Saxons and a other races, that's how they get to God. If we think that the gospel is just a cultural preference of how a particular culture wants to get to God, then we'll never be able to accept what Jesus did. Because what Jesus did will feel like ethnocentrism, ethnocentrism being prideful for your culture, right? If we think that the gospel is just a culture of preference, what Jesus did is ethnocentric. Or if we think that the gospel just claims to be a personal preference, that's how you get to God, but I can get to God in another way. If we think the gospel is just a personal preference, then we will never accept what Jesus did because what he did will look like narcissism, right? He, he's, he thinks his way is the right way and he's bullying me to become like his if we think the gospel is a culture preference it's going to be what jesus did will look like ethnocentrism if we think the gospel is a personal preference what jesus did will look like narcissism but that's not what the gospel claims to be it doesn't claim to be just a cultural way just a personal preference it claims to be what was it for jesus what was it in the bible it came to be the only way one gets to god it's the only way only truth only life The only sacrificial system of how sinful man can get to God. That God himself will redeem his people by purchasing their salvation on a cross and become a sin offering for you. That's what the the gospel is. It's a truth claim. As the only sacrificial system, and when one has zeal for this truth claim, as Jesus did, you won't view it as ethnocentrism. You won't view it as narcissism because it's not a culture preference. It's not a personal preference. It claims to be the only way to God. And when you have such zeal, you look at Jesus' act, now it's not it's no longer ethnocentrism or narcissism, but it's the willingness of somebody to look silly <laughs> for God's glory and for our salvation. You see? He's willing to look silly if it protects the gospel and if it gives God glory. See, each religion, that's what it claims to be. Each religion claims to be the sacrificial system, the only sacrificial system as our way to God. That's what religion is. It's not just a cultural claim. It's not just a personal preference. It claims to be the only sacrificial system. Now, now, other religions might not be sacrificial in the sense that somebody died for us so that we can get to God. But whenever, I'm sure you've heard this, whenever a religion says, you must sacrifice and serve God in this particular way, even though you don't want to do it, To earn points to get to God. Do something you don't want to do to earn points to get to God. That's a sacrifice. That's a sacrificial system. You sacrifice in such a way, you'll get to God. Or when a religion says you're supposed to abstain from certain things, because if you abstain from certain things and you sacrifice your wants to keep yourself pure, that's the way you get to God. That's a sacrificial system. You sacrifice something to get to God every religion claims to have a sacrificial system of how somebody gets to God. And we all claim to be the only sacrificial system. So see, it's only natural that one who claims to have, um, to be of a specific religion, one that claims to know the truth of how sinful man gets to God, will go all out. Because it's not just a culture preference. It's not a personal preference It's, It's the only way humans can get to God. If you truly believe you have that answer, you're going to go all out for God. Now, at this point, we live in a pluralistic society in Indonesia. At this point, it's really tempting, it is for me, to keep the peace and just to say, you know what, guys, let's not fight over this. There's truth in every religion. Let's just take the bits and pieces of truth from every religion and combine it into one big religion. That's how we're going to keep the peace. Well, not really. Not really because all you're doing is creating another truth claim <laughs> you're creating another sacrificial system of a combination religion of all the other religions you see you're not you're not actually fixing the problem you you're you're adding another one so the answer isn't to mix them all bundle them up together the answer is there there really is no other logical way but to go all out for your religion and that sounds scary because to us it sounds like extreme fundamentalism, right? That's what the extreme people do. They, they, they blow things up. They destroy things. We, we've had enough of that in Jakarta. We don't want to be that. We don't want to be extreme fundamentalists. Extreme fundamentalists always does that, right? Am I supposed to follow exactly what Jesus did and destroyed everything? Well, we said earlier, we're not called to follow Jesus' ex- exact actions, um, but we are called to follow his zeal. And when we do that, when we follow Jesus' zeal and not his actions, we'll find that ex- that extreme fundamentalism, which is based on the gospel, actually won't lead us to blowing things up. Extreme fundamentalism that is based on the gospel will actually lead us to sacrifice for others. Let me explain. Let's go to our second point. Number two, the embarrassment we're called to endure. Okay. So we've seen the picture of Jesus replacing himself Don't buy your salvation from these people. Don't rely your salvation on the death of these lambs. I'm the one who will buy it. I'm the one who will die for you. I'm replacing all of these. Now, narrative continues, and it shows us a dialogue between the Jewish leaders and Jesus. And if you look at the interaction, you'll see that Jesus actually made a fool himself, wailing around like a madman, and then after the interaction with the Jewish leaders, he's even further embarrassed. Let's look at that. Verse 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Who are you? What authority do you have to, to replace yourself as a sacrificial offering? See, the Jewish leaders actually correctly understood our first point. They got it. They knew that Jesus wasn't just confronting their cultural or personal preference with his cultural or personal preference. Jesus was confronting their truth claim with his truth claim. Jesus was confronting their sacrificial system with his sacrificial system. Jesus is saying, you have the wrong sacrificial system. And the Jews appropriately responded to this. Okay, they didn't just say, oh, if that works for your culture, you do that, and I'll do what works for my culture. They didn't say, if that personally works for you, just do that. I'll do whatever personally works for me. They didn't say that. They said, if you're making such a big claim, give me proof. What proof have you that you get to make Such a big claim that your sacrificial system is what's right. And Jesus responds, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews took this literally. They thought Jesus was actually talking about the the big temple they're standing in. And verse 20, they responded, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But they actually misunderstood Jesus. Jesus was talking about the temple of his own body, that when he dies, when he's crucified... He will be raised up again in three days. That's what he's talking about. But that's not the point. I, what I want to focus here is, and what's often missed in this dialogue, I think, is in this particular argument, the Jews won. Jesus lost. How do we know that? Because Jesus isn't recorded to having the last word. In every other interaction Jesus had with Jewish and religious leaders throughout the book of John, he always wins at the end. He always has the last word, and the Jews were not, or the Pharisees were not recorded to responding whoever gets the last word wins right but in this particular passage who had the final word not jesus the jews now jesus could have given them a sign you read in verse 23 25 jesus actually did signs in jerusalem right but he chose not to he said i'm i'm going to stop arguing and i'll let them win this is huge this is what jesus is saying i'll take the embarrassment that's okay I could prove you wrong right now if I wanted to, but it won't be beneficial to anybody. It'll just cause further argument. I'll take the embarrassment. I'll I'll shut up. You get the final word. Jesus here was shamed. He didn't have the last word. Plus, in verse 17, it says, his disciples remembered that it was written. After after this conversation happened, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for a father's house will consume me. I'm sorry, after Jesus uh, went crazy in the temple, Uh, That's what it says. The disciples remembered something that was written, where? From the Old Testament. This is a quote from the Old Testament, Psalm chapter 69. And the context of this psalm is the psalmist was being shamed because of his zeal for the father. Let's read that psalm just with me one time, and and, and we'll see what I mean. Um, Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me. Dishonor, shame, O God of Israel. For it is for your sake I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. For God's sake I have been dishonored, I have been shamed. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons, for zeal for your house has consumed me. That's the verse being quoted in our passage today. And the reproach of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, I became reproach. When I said, made sackcloth my clothing, I became byword to them. I'm just a, I'm just a passing to them. I'm the talk of those who sit in the gate, and the drunkards make songs about. It. The psalmist, because of his zeal for God, is being shamed by people in his culture at the time. Look at you! You're you're going all out. Ha! That's that's silly. That's embarrassing. You're an extreme fundamentalist. Don't do that. Don't go all out. the The psalmist was experiencing shame. Jesus was experiencing this kind of shame. He's being shamed right now because he wanted to protect the purity of God's place of worship and because he wanted to protect the gospel message that he's the only way to God, he was being embarrassed by his act. He was being embarrassed by the Jewish um, authorities. Now here's a question. Why would he be willing to risk shame? Why would he be willing to risk embarrassment? Because he took his claim seriously that the gospel is truly the only way sinful man can get to God. Remember in point one, we said, if someone takes religion too seriously, as if it's the only way to God, that leads them to extreme fundamentalism. And extreme fundamentalism is bad because extreme fundamentalism leads to people blowing things up, and it leads to people hurting other people. That's what extreme fundamentalism leads to. But is that what Jesus' actions led to? No. Yes, he, he did things, but he didn't blow the city up. He had a very specific target. The target was the, the people with bad motives that was selling money, that was financi- financially gaining from salvation. And he, he drove them away. And he also set the animals free, who I'm very sure were probably thankful for that. And by the way, the word whip there, you um, see, is a specific Greek word that talks about whip. For animals. It's to drive animals away. So the whip was most likely not used to hurt the people, but to scare the animals away. So if you actually study it, no one was actually hurt. Nothing was blown up. The only thing that was hurt was Jesus' pride. The only thing that was sacrificed was Jesus being embarrassed by this whole event. That's what was being hurt. He knew it was embarrassing to act like that. He knew it was embarrassing to not have the final word. But his extreme fundamentalism, listen to this, Jesus' extreme fundamentalism led him to giving up his pride for the glory of God and for the purity of the gospel. See, extreme, his extreme fundamentalism did not lead him to blowing things up, but to preach the gospel even when it causes him shame. After 9-11 in America, a lot of Americans came out and said, See? Look at, look at New York. This is what extreme fundamentalism does. It makes people blow stuff up. It makes people hurt other people. This is the result of extreme fundamentalism. And a particular wife's pastor responded very wisely, I thought. And she said, not necessarily. And they're like, what? What do you mean not necessarily? Look at New York. Look at the Twin Towers. It's gone. It's destroyed. Extreme fundamentalism does this. And she says, well, it depends what the fundamentals are. You see? If, if your religious truth claim, if your fundamentals, is somehow you can earn spiritual points by hurting other people that don't agree with you, then yes, your extreme fundamentalism will lead you to blow things up and hurt others, if that's your fundamentals. If, if your religious truth claim is that you can be saved by your own righteousness you can be saved by doing good things and that's, that's your way to God, then yes, your extreme fundamentalism will lead you to being very, very, very prideful because you've gotten yourself to God and that'll hurt people. But if your religious truth claim is that you can't do it on your own and that no matter how hard you try, you will never be good enough, you will never be strong enough, and that your only hope lies in the fact that your creator was willing to come down and make things right for you. Your only hope is that your creator died for you, sacrificed himself for you, that he may be reconciled with you. If that's your fundamentals, then extreme fundamentalism won't lead you to hurting others. It'll lead you to extreme humility. You see? It'll lead you to sacrifice because that's what's been done to you. Extreme fundamentalism doesn't necessarily lead to hurting people. It depends on what your fundamentals are. If your fundamentals are the gospel, it's actually going to lead you to extreme levels of humility and service. And if this is what the gospel is to you, not just a cultural preference, not just a personal preference, but it is what it claims to be, the truth claim of the only way sinners can get to God, that your God died for you so that he can be with you forever. If that's what the gospel is to you, then you might just be willing to lay down your pride like Jesus did. Maybe it might lead you to be willing to experience embarrassment and shame just so that others may have the chance to hear the gospel from your mouth and see the gospel in your life. If that's what the gospel is to you. But this embarrassment that we are called to endure, um, with us being extreme fundamentalists in the gospel, of course, This embarrassment, it will lead us to embarrassment because there are people today that twist the gospel for financial gain. What are we called to do about that? Will it shame us a little bit when we do speak up about it? Maybe, perhaps. But we'll see. This shame, embarrassment does not last forever. Jesus will be vindicated, and we also will be as we live a life of gospel fundamentalism. Point three, the vindication, the protection, the the defend... Uh, defense that we do not deserve, the vindication we do not deserve. Jesus was not worried at all about the opinions of man. He, he doesn't care if people saw him acting a fool. He doesn't care if people perceive him as losing an argument and it was embarrassed. You also see in verse 23 when, when some people believed in him quote unquote, Jesus in verse 24 didn't entrust himself to them meaning that he didn't put too much stock in what other people thought about him. Why? Because verse 25 says he knew what was in people. He knew he can't put too much stock in that. It's just, it's too fluctuating if you rely solely your identity in people's opinions. What this passage is saying is though gospel fundamentalism might lead you to being shamed for the sake of others, it might lead you to sacrifice and lay down your pride to protect the gospel, you will be vindicated, but you'll be protected and defended. But your vindication will not happen when people think well of you. Your vindication won't happen when people start saying good things about you. Look at him protecting the gospel. Oh, wow. That's not that's not when you'll be vindicated. So when? When will you be vindicated? How long do we endure the shame? Well, Jesus was vindicated at the very end when he was resurrected. Look at verse 22. When did Jesus' disciples finally get this whole thing? When did Jesus' disciples finally understand what Jesus was trying to do in the temple? Verse 22. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word, of, the word that Jesus had spoken. Only then, when Jesus raised from the dead, he remembered, oh, that's what he did in the temple. So this whole time, between the temple incident and the resurrection of Jesus, the disciples probably were still a little bit embarrassed by Jesus. I can imagine disciples, you know, this whole time following Jesus, yes, still a bit ashamed about what happened, I can just imagine the conversation that happens as they go to city to city, they meet new people. Hey, my name's Peter. Yeah, I'm with him. Yeah, he's the one that went crazy in the temple, I know. Yes, he was screaming at the animals too. Yes, for one whole hour. Oh my God. <laughs> it's just embarrassing. And they, they probably continued to walk in this embarrassment. They didn't understand. And Jesus didn't feel the need to be vindicated to protect himself. You'll get your sign, he says. I will be vindicated when I rise from the dead. And only then did they understand. Only then did the image of what they saw in the temple made sense. The Lamb of God chasing away all the other sacrificial animals, standing there alone, panting in the middle of the temple, saying, I am your Lamb. I will die for you. Not these animals. It was only then when the words of Jesus at the temple to the Jewish leaders made sense. You're going to destroy this temple and build it again? It took 40 plus years to build it. What do you mean? Oh, he meant the temple of his body. A temple is where a sinful man meets God. The body of Christ was broken, and only in that can we have a relationship with God. That's what he meant. Now I get it. Jesus endured the shame of what he did in the temple. He endured the shame of the cross because the zeal for his father's house consumed him, and his zeal for you and I consumed it. so we are like him called not to do exactly what he did that was specific to his identity as the lamb of God but we are called to follow his zeal and to endure whatever embarrassments might come along whatever sacrifice might come along for the benefit of others that they may see and hear the gospel with our words and with our lives that we may love them even when it's costly to us that's what our gospel fundamentalism does it leads us lay on our lives be willing to be put to shame if they can just hear the love of God through Christ. Don't worry so much about winning arguments. You will be vindicated at the end. Don't worry so much about trying to make everybody understand to the T exactly why you're so passionate about your Jesus. They're, not, they're probably not going to get it if they do this by the grace of God. Stay faithful one step after the other. You will be vindicated. But one more thing I want to address before we end. This vindication of ours, this victory of ours, is not one we can be pompous and arrogant about. Because remember, it's not one that we've earned based on our own righteousness or our own religiosity. Remember the gospel? We don't get to hang this victory over other people's heads saying, I'm better than you. I'm victorious, I'm vindicated because I'm better than you. No, we can't. We're not any better. It's by His mercy. It's by his grace. Verse 19 says, it's because his body was destroyed. That's the only reason why we can have and partake in the salvation. So, if you've truly received the gospel as the scripture claims it to be, if you've truly received the gospel as Jesus claims it to be, not just a cultural preference, not just a personal preference, it will lead you to extreme fundamentalism. But the extreme fundamentalism of the gospel is not one that will lead you to blow things up. It's not one that will lead you to hurt others for your own benefit. It's one that will lead you to be willing to sacrifice yourself for the benefit of others. And this gospel, God's love for sinners through Christ, it's worth sharing with our wives, uh, words and with our deeds. Not pridefully, not obnoxiously, but humbly and kindly. Not, not at the expense of others, but at our own expense. Not by hurting others, but by sacrificing our own comfort, even our own pride. That's what Christian fundamentalism is. And that's what it should lead you to. If the gospel to you have been received, not as a culture preference, not as a personal preference, but as the only way sinners can get to God. Let's pray. Lord, how often do we shy away from you? How we shy away from protecting your gospel? How we shy away from not defending or from defending your place of worship? And we allow people to simply manipulate and twist the gospel in such a way that earns them financial profit. Lord, forgive us for that sin. Forgive us that we've valued our pride and our social status more than your glory more than your gospel where you did not care at all about your social status you did not care at all about your pride you laid it out you're willing to be embarrassed for us to preach the gospel in the temple you're willing to be embarrassed for us on that cross when you're crucified as a criminal that we may have eternal life and lord as we Believe in the gospel as what it claims to be, as what you claim it to be. Not a culture preference, not a personal preference, but the only way sinners from whatever culture, with whatever personalities, the only way sinners can get to their creator. I beg you by your mercy, if that message has not yet been real in the hearts of people here today, make it real. Change our hearts. Renew it. Redeem it. Preserve us not by our own works, not by our own religiosity, but by the love of Christ on the cross. And as you change our hearts, lead us deeper to go all out for you, to be fundamentalist for you. But know and remind us that gospel fundamentalism does not lead to blowing things up. It does not lead to hurting others because our fundamentals is the exact opposite of that. Our fundamentals is one of a God that died for sinners, is one of a God that died for his enemies. And our fundamentalism will lead us more to that. That we also may sacrifice our lives, ourselves, our money, our time, or even our social status, which is probably the hardest one to lay down. To protect your glory and to protect your gospel. Father, I beg you for this mercy and grace, not something that can happen from one sermon, but only one that can happen by the work of your spirit in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.